gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. So, what did we do last week? Last week, I tried to do this fancy pants thing that podcast hosts wear belts do and uh, tease the topics that we were going to talk about um, over the course of the episode. And um, basically, nobody seemed to much care that I did that, except for a few people who didn't like that I did that. Um, because they liked the uh, freewheeling, free association, hey, look at that shiny pen, penny kind of aspect of my meanderings. So um, in the great spirit of um, um, you get what you wish for, good and hard, we'll do that. So I have no idea what I'm going to talk about. No notes, no net. And uh, I wish we kind of had a, like a live studio audience so we could do this even more improv where someone would shout out a topic and I would start talking about it. That would be kind of fun. Um, I used to want to do this thing, speaking of that, uh, where in the early days of National Review uh, online, uh, not, I wasn't alive for the early days of National Review, um, but in the um, early days, those are, I don't know if you guys can hear the doggies barking up there. Um, oh, I should explain. So uh, this is very, I'm recording this very early because um, Adam, our, 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 our supreme leader podcast guy, um, asked me if I could get it to him before 8 a.m. on Friday, which is today, um, because he'll be on a train, be perfect time for him to edit um, while on the train. And so I planned on getting it done yesterday, but um, I know I don't talk about it a lot, but like I have like... <laughs> weird meetings that I still have to do as like a media guy. And, um, I also, um, have all sorts of crazy estate stuff to do for my mom and, um, um, and I'm also still, you know, we never really had a proper memorial service cause my mom wanted to have a party, not a funeral. Um, and I was not ready to have a party. So we are now planning one for, for April. And so like, there's this party planning stuff that I'm doing anyway. So just a lot of stuff on, on, on my plate. And so I couldn't get it done yesterday. Felt bad about it. So I set my alarm for five fifteen, and I was going to get up and do it. Um, old school pre-dawn, um, uh, ramble. And I s- forgot to, to, to say, um, AM. And so, uh, I overslept by about an hour and a half. Um, and, uh, so I didn't get this audio to Adam in time and for which I apologize, but I am recording kind of early and kind of rushed. And where was I before? Oh, right. So in the early days of national review online, um, when, uh, I should say in the early days of like the corner, when I was really getting my chops at being able to write fast on stuff, um, I wanted to do these contests where like um we would all wait for the newspaper to come out the next day and the moment it was available or online or whatever we would have i wonder what i wanted to do was like do a quality versus quantity speed writing contests um a couple times i did this with the old 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 version of the g file where i would just um 
uh, tell readers, okay, whatever is in the left-hand corner of the New York Times tomorrow, that's the topic I'm going to write about. And it was kind of stupid, but it was also just kind of fun. You know, there's this, you know, uh, there are a handful of people who can write on stuff. Um, there are a lot of people who can write really, really well, but they write slowly. And there are a lot of people who can write really, really fast, but they don't write particularly well. Um, and there's a bunch of people who try to, and there are a handful of people who try to um, meet at the most optimal point on both the X and Y axis on that kind of thing. And, I, you know, I, I'm one who tries. I'm not saying I'm anything like the best. You know, there was like that A.J. Liebling, who was this New Yorker, famous critic for the New Yorker, said he could write faster than anyone who could write better, and he could write better than anyone who could write faster. And that's sort of like the ideal of what I'm getting at. And um, I always wanted to do that kind of thing where, because there are other people who are really, really good at, um, I don't mean to be bragging, I'm just saying that there are people who are, I admire for their ability to do this, whether they're, um, and you know, I'm fine with saying they're better than me, but like Kevin Williamson can write very well, very fast. Um, Mark Stein, um, for all of his drama and um, quirks, I'm being very diplomatic here, uh, is a brilliant fast writer. Make it what you will about his arguments, his perspective, all that kind of stuff. But Mark is just a truly talented fast writer, particularly in this subcategory sub of things of writing funny, fast, and well. Because that's really hard, right? Um, and anyway, how did I get on this? So I don't know, but that's the problem that you have when I actually go into this cold with with no planning, but maybe as we proceed, it will occur to me why, why, um, I brought this up in the first, but, Oh, I just, I was just saying how it'd be fun if, if I could get feedback in real time from, uh, you dear listeners about what I should talk about. You know, someone could just sort of shout Farfignugan, um, or Futternide, um, Futternide being one of my absolute favorite German words, I'm sure I've talked about this on here before, but uh, Futternide basically means food envy. Um, but in the in my understanding, in the, in the context of essentially, it's not like food envy in the sense that you're starving and somebody else has food. It's um, sort of like you ordered better than me at the restaurant and I wish I had your food instead of my food. And um, I think there are probably more than a few married couples out there who have minor rivalries with their spouses um, about who ordered better when you go to restaurants. And um, uh, I'll just say my wife and I, we have that kind of dynamic going on often. And, um, and so as I, as I put it once in a column about this, um, you know, if I order better than you, um, your futternide fuels my schadenfreude. And uh, anyway, so people could just sort of yell out topics and we could just start talking. That would be kind of fun. And maybe we'll start, you know, we want to get back to doing some live remnant um, events. Uh, there was some internal pressure at um, World Remnant Headquarters uh, to do something special for the 600th episode of The Remnant, which we just passed. I opted not to do that um, because just schedule and life and is 600 really that special a number? I mean, are any of these numbers in the grands? I don't want to go all, you know, what's his name? Um, 
the, the Tyson guy. What was his name? The I love science guy who always just ruins everybody's birthdays by saying, you know, it's just because the planet moved around the sun um, one more time on this day and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, I don't want to like get all uh, nihilist, mathematically nihilist about the importance of round numbers, but I just didn't feel very strongly about the 600. But I do want to do more live events and maybe we can do some fun stuff like uh, on that kind of stuff and just do big Q&A sessions and whatnot. I, I would like to. Um, and, uh, you know, hopefully people wouldn't yell out, you know, really strange things. Um, um, you know, but who knows? All right. So where to go from here? Um, I guess we should cover some news. Uh, there was a big ass balloon spotted over Montana yesterday, which almost sounds like World War II code, you know, um, um, the fat man bathes in the dirty moonlight. A chair is against the door. A big ass balloon was spotted over Montana. It's just, it's a fun sentence. Um, I fear much trouble in the fuselage Frederick, um, which is actually a line from the odd couple where uh, Felix is freaking out about being on a plane and he thinks he can lip read and he thinks some mechanic is saying, I fear much trouble in the fuselage Frederick. Um, anyway, a lot of people are very upset about it. Um, look, I am all for being tough with China. I'm all for having a um, no, no a sort of zero tolerance for BS policy with China. But of all the forms of espionage that China is doing, this troubles me less. Yeah, there's an issue about entering our airspace and yada, yada, yada. I get that. Um, and again, we should formally protest and all that. But we should formally protest because we caught them. Um more than because they were doing it because we do a lot of spying on China. China does a lot of spying on us and the kind of China kind of spying that uh, I think we should be much tougher and aggressive on is like the, um, the human intelligence stuff where they're basically bribing um, or paying for in other ways um, experts in academia and, and the hard sciences and um, all that kind of thing. Um, I think that's that's the kind of thing that that we should be kind of ballistic about, and and we should send a lot of people packing when we catch them doing this. I know there's there's a certain group of people, and I'm not saying that they're entirely wrong. I think they have some good arguments on their side, who think that all of this kind of talk about the infiltration of China into academia and into and particularly into sort of research science is, you know, a continuation of the yellow peril kind of paranoia. And it can be that depending on who you were listening to and how they talk about it. But it's also a real problem. I mean, the FBI has is, is said that the level and scope of penetration by China into all sorts of institutions in America um, is staggering. Um, and they're opening basically a Chinese espionage case, I think, every day. So, you, you know, it's sort of like... Um, you can accuse some people of being paranoia, but you can't say that they don't have grounds to be paranoid. Um, anyway, you know, we use spy satellites. It's just, it's a balloon thing that I think freaks out a lot of people. Um, I like balloons. I think balloons are cool. I'm a little upset that 
I'm not the only person to come up with various uh, 99 Luft balloons uh, puns and jokes. Uh, but um, I don't, until I know more, I don't think it's as big a deal as people are making it out to be. It's certainly, I think, probably embarrassing for China that they got busted. Um, and it's probably good that we're embarrassing them because maybe that'll move them on the back foot for a little while. Um, so what else to talk about? So I wrote about um, the war in Ukraine uh, this week. It was, I got some nice compliments for the column. I didn't particularly like it because I had this idea for how to, what I wanted to say, and I just couldn't bend the words in that direction, which is um, a very, very frustrating feeling. Um, it's interesting how often I'll think about my attitude towards stuff I write, at least for the first couple of weeks after I wrote it, is how I felt while writing it rather than the actual prose. Um, and if I felt like I was in my groove, uh, I'll feel really good about it regardless of what people say. And if I feel like I wasn't, I won't. Um, which is why I'm often surprised when people like stuff that I didn't feel good writing and often pissed off when people don't like stuff that I did feel good writing. So I'm not saying this is rational. Um, I mean, if it were rational, there wouldn't be, you know, a naked Indian staring at me right now. But um, the point, the kind of argument that I wanted to make, which, you know, I nod towards in the piece, is that so much of the debate about Russia and Ukraine right now isn't about the facts on the ground. It's about people are making the art, you know, it's sort of, you know, the old cliche about looking for your, the drunk looking for his car keys where the light is good. Um, the arguments that people want to have about Russia um, and the, I should say, the, the invasion of Ukraine is, are, they want the arguments that they want to have regardless of whether the fact pattern in the real world supports them, right? And so, um, you know, there are an enormous number of people who, one good test of this, well, I should put it this way, one good test of the, the soundness of somebody's own position is how well and how accurately and how fairly they characterize the position of people that they disagree with. So apparently the other day, uh, after I wrote the piece, but um, J.D. Vance, you know, when he endorsed Donald Trump, because of course, he said that uh, Donald Trump is the only one who could negotiate peace between Russia and Ukraine, which is, of course, ludicrous. And he says, unlike everybody, all, all of the other people running or words to that effect, um, he doesn't want us to go into World War III. Now, I complained about this on Twitter and said, you know, look, if you're going to stake out a position in contrast to a lot of other people, um, you should be able to cite some evidence of somebody holding the position you ascribe to them. Um, you know, even if it's a nut, right? I mean, even if it's, you know, some, you know, wackadoo sort of fringe fever swamp type, there should be somebody saying their position is what you say, you know, you're disagreeing with, right? So who, just tell me, if anybody out there knows, who says they want World War Three? I mean, who? I mean, even the Russians don't say they want World War Three. The Ukrainians say they don't want World War Three. Um, the most hawkish people from Boris Johnson to me don't want World War Three. 
part of the argument is, is that if you let Russia take Ukraine, that sets you down a path that gets you closer to World War III. The way we got to World War II was by appeasing an aggressor who didn't want to stop at one conquest. And like, I'm not the one dragging in World War II metaphors here. It's the people saying that the, everyone wants World War III. Um, and I just don't know anybody. I haven't heard anybody. I follow the Russia-Ukraine stuff pretty closely. I highly recommend the Telegraph's Ukraine, the latest podcast, if you haven't listened to it. Um, and no one says they want World War III. And I, when I pointed this out on Twitter, all these people were saying, you know, well, if you, if, you, if you want the Ukrainians to do the fighting for us, then by definition, you want World War III. Or if you want this or that or whatever, then you want World War III. And I was like, no, that's not necessarily true. Um, you know, this argument, which a lot of people seem to believe that uh, letting the Ukrainians do the fighting against Russia with our weapons is no different than basically saying you want World War III or that we're already in World War III. It's just, it's, it's kind of nuts. You know, Ronald Reagan had this thing called the Reagan Doctrine, which I think, I think uh, my late friend Charles Krauthammer was the one who coined it that. But it was basically this idea that we will support the Mujahideen, people like the Mujahideen in Afghanistan, the Contras in Nicaragua. We will give, lend aid and material support to um, forces that are trying to fight uh, communist insurgencies in their own countries that are being funded and fueled by um, um, the Soviet Union. That was not a policy to push us into World War III. That was a policy to fend off World War III. Um, you know, the whole Vietnam is definitely worth criticizing from all sorts of angles, from both the we could have won it argument to the we should never have been there in the first place argument. All those things, those are different arguments than what I want to get into. But the idea that that proxy war was uh, synonymous with wanting World War Three with Russia is just not supportable by the facts. And it's not even supportable in terms of the, the secondary, the fallback, the Mont and Bailey kind of arguments that some of these people are making, which is saying that, okay, so maybe people don't actually want World War Three, but they are insufficiently scared of World War Three that they are at, they're in favor of escalating uh, irresponsibly and precipitously that will, and that will lead to World War Three. Well, you know, Vietnam did not lead to World War Three. The Korean War did not lead to World War Three. Um, supporting the Afghan, uh, the Mujahideen in Afghanistan did not lead to World War Three. Supporting the Contras did not. Um, we came really freaking close with some badness during the Cuban Missile Crisis, but um, that was kind of a sui generis thing as well. And maybe JFK should have taken less Adderall. So my basic view is Russia is a geopolitical foe. Mitt Romney was right when he said he, it was a geopolitical foe. All of the people who threw that episode in Obama's face saying Mitt Romney was right, um, who have subsequently changed their positions are, whether they're hypocritical or inconsistent or incoherent is up to the observer. Um, but the simple fact is that Mitt Romney was right, that Russia um, under Putin is committed, philosophically, strategically committed to undermining the global order, 
undermining the role of the West, undermining um, the solidarity of NATO, um, undermining America's role as the uh, maintainer of uh, a global order. Um, it foments all sorts of dissent and um, disunity and, and, um, and worse in all sorts of countries. It is, it is less a proponent of a coherent vision of what the world order should be and more like basically like the Joker in the Dark Knight. It wants to see things. It just, some people just want to see the world burn. And it has sort of imbibed the worst elements and worst paranoia and worst theories from both the Russian Empire and from the Soviet Union um, to justify its position. And people just aren't really sort of paying attention. You know, it was fascinating. The, a couple of weeks ago, um, or maybe a week ago, there was a Quran burning um, protest thing in Sweden. And Erdogan, the um, president, possibly president for life of Turkey, used that as an excuse to say it was opposing Sweden's entry into NATO. And um, because the Swedes allowed the protest to continue. Well, it turns out that the person who actually paid the permit fee for the protest and who was arguably behind, at least the last reporting I saw, argue behind the Quran burning itself was this nutty racist right wing guy who has been sort of a, 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 if not a Putin agent, then a Putin asset. So of course, you know, I mean, it, that makes a lot of sense, right? Is Russia wants to keep Sweden and Finland from joining. Turkey's got its own issues. So Russia sets up an operation where um, a Quran gets burnt so that Erdogan can use as an excuse to block Sweden's entry into NATO. Russia's a bad actor. And if you believe it's a bad actor, and if you believe that... Uh, that Putin's ambitions do not end with Ukraine any more than they ended with Georgia um, or Grozny or, or Crimea, um, then sending the signal that, you know, uh, going across borders uh, with militaries to seize land needs to be stopped, you know, that there needs to be zero tolerance for that. If you believe that, then you actually have to have zero tolerance for it. And, it's very frustrating to me, you know, when we were in Iraq and again, very open to criticism about, about the Iraq war, um, or even when we were in Afghanistan, the argument was Americans shouldn't be dying to protect these countries. Let the people who live in those, let Iraqis fight for Iraq, let Afghans fight for Afghan, Afghanistan. It's a perfectly fair argument within the four corners of the argument. Sometimes I think it's strategically naive and sometimes I think it's in bad faith. Um, but it certainly is a powerful emotional position. Well, in this case, the Ukrainians want to fight for Ukraine. All they're asking for are the weapons and the ammo to do it. And um, the people who would normally say Americans shouldn't be fighting for Ukraine you know, um, let the Ukrainians fight for Ukraine are now saying, well, we can't even help the Ukrainians fight. And I think it's just a really crappy, fairly evil position to take. And which gets me back to the, what I wanted that column to be about, which is that there is this disconnect between the reality of what is happening um, and the rhetoric about what people want to argue about. So like Andy Biggs, um, he can't oppose sending 
he's this jackwad congressman. Uh, he says, you know, he can't oppose sending Abrams, which we're barely doing. If you actually look out, this thing is going to work. Um, we can't send Abrams tanks because, you know, it's going to end up with Americans in those tanks. And I know no such thing. No one knows any such thing. That's not part of the arrangement. Part of the arrangement is to be f- flat out, um, um, uh, you know, concrete about how Americans won't be driving those tanks, which is why we're training Ukrainians to drive those tanks. But Biggs would rather talk about a, a hypothetical scenario than the actual scenario that we're in. Um, and I think that's a sign of how weak the arguments against helping Ukraine are. Um, and just like I think, you know, Vance's everybody else wants World War III, um, it's really easy to defend your position if you're going to turn everybody into a straw man who wants World War III. Well, then, of course, you have, you have no choice but to endorse Donald Trump, you know, man of peace. Um, anyway, so uh, I just think, so if you take it as a proposition that, that Russia is a geopolitical foe, that it is in our interest to see it degraded, um, that it is in our interest to see its military cap- capabilities um, reduced. Um, if you think it's in our interest to send a signal to China that this sort of thing will not be tolerated, vis-a-vis Taiwan or anywhere else, if you think it's in our interest to to really hammer home the lesson that these kinds of invasions don't necessarily go as well as you plan, um, then it is in our interest for those and a million other humanitarian and other in- reasons for us to help the Ukrainians. And no, that doesn't mean we should have World War III. That doesn't mean that we should have nuclear missiles. That doesn't mean American troops should fight. But we should do everything we can within reason to help the Ukrainians in their utterly moral fight to protect their own country and their own borders. And it is astounding how many of these supposedly like really passionate nationalists out there who say that um, you know, the nation state is the fundamental moral unit of the international order and borders must be respected and that borders matter and blah, 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 blah. All sorts of arguments that I agree with to one extent or another um, um, are all of a sudden like, eh, the Russians really want Ukraine. Who are we to say no? It's in their sphere of influence. Um, you know, it's it's really kind of freaking hilarious that the EU is cast by a lot of these people as this terrifying, horrible empire, but a country that sends tanks over the border to murder people and shell cities um, and, po- and civilian population centers, essentially in the name of empire, like actual empire, um, um, doesn't scare any of these supposed like lovers of the nation state. It's, it kind of tells you something. What else? Uh, we talked on the dispatch podcast about all this, um, committee, uh, removal, falterall and hootenanny and brouhaha and Donnybrook. Uh, and, uh, I'm trying really hard to figure out a way I can actually care about it other than a spectacle. I agree with my friend Dan McLaughlin over at National Review that there's a strong case to be made for the Republicans playing this tit-for-tat game. Eventually, this tit-for-tat stuff hopefully would burn itself out. 
and they would get back to sort of a, a, a fairly liberal rule, right? A liberal rule would be a rule that says, you know, we will all abide by, you know, the, the long tradition of each party determining who's going to be on what committees and yada, yada, yada. And it's going to apply when we're in the majority. It's going to apply when we're in the minority, right? It's sort of like the classic statement on, um, on liberalism. God, what's his name? James Harrison, I think, is the British political philosopher. Um, and there's a lot of this in Rawls. I've talked about this before, where the idea of a, a, a fair neutral rule is um, liberal rule, right? Is if you have a cake, uh, one person gets to cut the cake, but the other person gets the first piece. So the incentives are aligned for the, the cutter to cut fairly so because he knows he's going to get second pick. And um, that's basically how institutions like this should work. And when people start futzing around with the rules, everything can go cattywampus. That said, it did not bother me in the slightest when they took Marjorie Taylor Greene off of committees. And I really can't like be super psyched that the Republican Party is getting its vengeance for the affront to Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar. I mean, I get it as an institutional obligation. They got to have some of those fights. But Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar are bad, bad apples, particularly Gosar. I mean, he's, a, he's every bit as anti-Semitic as Elon Omar. Um, and I can't, like, be aggrieved for the plight of poor Elon Omar or even of, of Adam Schiff and, and Swalwell, who are smarmy um, uh, people. But uh, um, so I just, you know, Congress is supposed to be a place with lots of political intrigue and fighting and, and all that kind of stuff. So let them fight, you know, um, and hopefully we'll get to some sort of new equilibrium. And there's a certain benefit in having people think that these committee assignments really, really matter um, and that, you know, it's important to actually do your work in Congress. Um, but whether that's actually a lesson and it's not more like two warring tribes ritualistically cutting each other um, to claim who's the greater victim. Um, I don't know. You know, on victimhood, it's, it's funny how among conservatives, among conservative eggheads, right? I try not to use the word intellectual, but among conservative, smart conservatives, including most of my friends, including me, right? I'm, I'm, I'm including myself in this. The argument about how victimhood was the cult of victimhood, the, um, the glorification of victimhood um, was ruining the country and it was the left's fault is very, very, very old. I mean, I, the, the first piece, the only piece I ever wrote for the public interest was all about this problem on college campuses. Um, and that was, my God, I don't know, uh, 25 years ago, something like that. Um, um, and my argument was not by no means a new argument. The original book, James Burnham, Suicide of the West, a big part of his argument is that the problem with liberalism was that it was suffocating in guilt. And that was causing this sort of cult of, 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 of lionizing victims. It used to be a, a regular theme of conservatives to talk about how victimhood was the new coin of the realm and how we needed to create a society where we stopped looking to blame others for our problems and, and all that kind of thing. And I still believe that that's a big 
part of my argument in Suicide of the West is this constant emphasis on past grievances, ancestral grievances, um, on notions of entitlement because something bad happened to your great-great-grandfather, um, notions of entitlement because your feelings say you're entitled rather than any facts to bring to bear, um, the sort of widespread notion of you know feelings of ingratitude. You've heard me talk about all this stuff before. Um, so I agree with all that, but man, it has just simply become bipartisan. Um, there's a piece in the post today about how, you know, like the quickest way to become a hero on the right is to be, you know, a victim of the deep state or the media or whatever, you know, you have Carrie Lake who just lost, just friggin' lost, but she's sort of this hero in Arizona and other places for like proudly defying people and owning, you know, her entirely made up victimhood. A lot of the talk about from right wingers about why we have to own the libs and why the media is so evil and all that kind of stuff, or all the talk about, you know, like, look, it was stupid for Hillary Clinton to talk about deplorables the way she did, you know, and her math was off and all that. I'm not going to defend the deplorable thing because I think Hillary Clinton was deplorable. And I think the statement, you know, the deplorable thing was a perfect example of how um, she was never nearly as good a politician as people thought she was. But the whining, the bitching and moaning from the MAGA crowd about the deplorable thing for seven years now, it, it really kind of tells you something. I mean, it, it, there is this massive sort of chip on the shoulder, um, whiny, woe is me, we're the real victims of society crap going on. A lot of martyrdom too. I mean, <laughs> like Dinesh compares himself to Martin Luther King because he went to jail for a campaign finance violation. Now, I think there's an argument to be made that he shouldn't have gone to jail for what he did, that it was sort of excessive or punitive. There's also an argument that he should have gone to jail. I don't really give a rat's ass and I'm not in the business of defending Dinesh at this point. But whether he deserved to go or not, the idea that he was like Martin Luther King and that he's some sort of, you know, heroic martyr victim um, is, uh, sorry, John Pedoritz is texting me and I forgot to put my phone on do not disturb. Um, um, it's just sort of ridiculous. Um, and it's sort of become, um, instantiated and actually I think it drives a lot of policy stuff on the right these days. All of the, you know, loss manufacturing thing, even look, even, and, and like there are some places where it, it helps drive, policy positions um, for legitimate reasons. And there are legitimate problems behind it. Like the deaths of despair thing is terrible. The fentanyl overdose stuff is terrible. The opioid crisis stuff is terrible. There are definitely reasons for finding good public policy solutions to them. But to listen to the way, you know, uh, like the sort of Tucker heads talk about a lot of this stuff it's really about, you know, victimhood. They're coming after us. You know, I mean, the whole, you know, January 6th people are, you know, we're um, freedom fighters and they're in jail because they're political prisoners. And, um, you know, uh, you know, at CPAC, they ran that banner that said we're all domestic terrorists now because they wanted to sort of find common cause of people. I thought the Department of Education's letter calling, you know, the threats, you know, on school boards and stuff, domestic terrorism were, was 
really politically inept, although threats on school boards are terrible and all that, but it was just, it was handled badly. And I think the administration incompetently got worked um, by various bad actors and all that kind of stuff. Um, But the turning that into like this part of this cult of martyrdom and, and victimhood is pretty exhausting. I mean, yeah, now you got Ron DeSantis saying that he's going to remove all taxes on the sale of gas stoves in Florida. Look, I I, I was very clear. I think the gas stove thing was um, that the media completely screwed that up, completely screwed that up. I think the conservatives who were complaining about the attempt to ban gas stoves were directionally right. I mean, some people got over their skis and all that kind of thing. But uh, the the attempt by the media to literally, I shouldn't say literally, but ironically gaslight people into saying that conservatives started this culture war thing with gas stoves was just a lie. And it was kind of outrageous. Bloomberg ran a story saying that, that the government was considering um, a ban on gas stoves. And it was in the plain text of the article and people responded to that. And then the, the Washington Post, the New York Times, NPR, all these guys took the response as, as the outrageous thing, right? Like they're making this up. No one said ban gas stoves. And they took the, when the White House walked things back, they made it sound like that was the first statement from the White House, that the government, when the government said, no, we're actually, we're not doing that right now, uh, that was used as as if the initial thing about them considering banning it had never happened. It was really bad faith, and it's one of those little things that causes people to just sort of turn their back on the mainstream media, and they should all be ashamed of themselves. That said, why take you know, why give favorable tax treatment to gas stoves in Florida to own the libs? I mean, come on. It's exhausting. I keep trying to figure out a way to think about this or write about this in a way that doesn't sound like the usual both sides stuff. But, you know, one of my great peeves, and I've written about this a lot, you know, about the progressive era and how, you know, American, about how modern American historians talk about America's past they get into this thing where whenever America does something bad, whenever something bad is done in America, a lot of historians, including some very good historians, they first look to see if they can blame conservatives or the right wing um, or stand-ins for that Christian fundamentalists, whatever big business. uh, they, They first look to see if they can blame it on them. And then if they can't connect those dots, they blame it on America itself, that this is just sort of um, part of the original sin of America. It's part of um, it, it derives from the fact that, you know, um, um, American exceptionalism is bad and, and capitalism is bad and, you know, or it all comes from the legacy of slavery itself. But you, it's very difficult to find mainstream progressive liberal historians, you know, the ones who basically control the commanding heights of the profession, who are willing to say from time to time, <laughs> actually, the left did really bad things in this country. And I don't mean like in the Cold War period where there were a bunch of people on the left who were uh, either taking money from the Soviet Union or working for free for the Soviet Union. 
I'm talking about before that, you know, I mean, most of the racist immigration laws, um, big chunks of Jim Crow in this country, including in the federal government, all of these things were progressive. Eugenics was progressive. Um, it wasn't, you know, I mean, every, there's been an industry for over a century to blame all eugenics on Herbert Spencer, who was a libertarian. Um, and, but because he used one phrase that was picked up by progressive eugenicists, he gets to blame for everything. That survival of the fittest thing. But social Darwinism wasn't the thing that people think it was. And I, I think I recorded a whole essay about this um, you know, a couple of years ago on this, this podcast. Um, but my point is, is that you don't get um, acknowledgement that it's possible that, that liberals or progressives, whatever label you want to use, were the authors of some of the bad things in American history. And the only reason I bring that up is that it's becoming difficult for me to see how I'm, I'm having, a, let me put it this way. I'm having a newfound appreciation for some of those historians um, who attributed some of the bad things in American history just to America itself, not the constitution, not the founders, all that kind of stuff, but what was just simply in the water in the country at the time. Right. And I kind of feel like a century from now when people look at this broad post cold war period um, or the or post, you know, 1990s period, um, they, they will be able to make these both sides ism um, statements about, about things that were afflicting both sides um, of the ideological spectrum, but because they were on both sides of the ideological spectrum, they manifested themselves differently. And one of them is just this just overwhelming cult of victimhood, which defines so much of the left and the right. Um, you know, I mean, listening to AOC yesterday on the floor screaming about how this, you know, taking Elon Omar off this committee is all about targeting, you know, women of color. Don't tell me that this is about an a condemnation of anti-Semitic remarks when you have a member of the Republican caucus who, have, who has talked about Jewish space lasers and, and an entire amount of tropes and also elevated her to some of the highest committee assignments in this body. This is about targeting women of color in the, in the United States of America. It's just not, you know, <laughs> it's not. You can still think it's unfair. You can still think it's wrong, but, you know, you don't have to reify it and, and turn it into this identity politics argument. I mean, the two other people who were being pulled off committees were, were white heterosexual men. And similarly, like the rhetoric, particularly from the very online right about, you know, they, you know, they hate you. They're after you. If they can go after the president. That means they can do it to you. It's all this sort of, we are martyrs, we are victims stuff. And it's just in the American system. And I could probably make an argument that the right picked, picked this stuff up from the left um, because so much of the problems of the right these days are the right deciding we can't beat identity politics, so we should create our own. But, you know, I, I suspect that there are strains, there have always been strains of this um, within certain, you know, uh, tributaries of American Christianity going way, way back. And there's always been, you know, the paranoid style has always been an American thing, not a right wing thing. But man, I, it just seems to me that like, like if you can get the right critical distance, a lot of the problems that we have with our politics 
are cultural and psychological problems that manifest themselves differently on the left and the right. But we, too many people think that it's ideology driven when in fact it's just the ideology is, uh, you know, is the label that we put on these psychological and cultural dysfunctions um, that are way upstream. And I, I suspect that, you know, that, that um, historians, when they look back on this long period, um, they will probably find a lot more explanatory power in the breakdown of organized religion than they will in all sorts of ideological and economic arguments. And, you know, the breakdown in organized religion starts on the left, and that's where you start to see um, politics become a form of religion first. Um, and then the breakdown of religion, uh, you know, spreads to the right, and politics is becoming in some ways, even more powerfully, um, a new kind of political religion. Um, because human beings cannot, and this is the point of my first book, my second book, and my third book, human beings cannot turn off their hunger for meaning and belonging. And if you don't have good, healthy institutions that provide satisfactory repositories for those feelings, um, we will look elsewhere. The quest for community cannot be denied. And so the, a lot of the problems of our politics have to do with the healthy expressions um, or the healthy, you know, objects of the quest for community being um, removed, be they local neighborhood, be they strong families, be they um, organized religion and healthy schools and all that kind of stuff. And when you take those things away, um, you know, people's hunger looks elsewhere and too many people are looking to Washington and to politics. I think I, I'm coming around to the point of view that my understanding of how the left started a lot of these problems is giving way to this sort of view that um, the left didn't start these problems is that a lot of these problems first became apparent on the left, but they weren't created by the left. You know, it's sort of like if there's some pathogen some disease vector, right? Some pandemic thing that uh, let's say people with diabetes are much more susceptible to it. Everyone can get it, but people with diabetes can get it more easily. Then you wouldn't say that the people with diabetes created the disease, even though it could look that way, right? Because like nobody had this disease and then all of a sudden all the diabetics had it. And you're like, aha, it's because of the diabetics. No, it's just that they got it first. And I think this loss, loss of Faith, loss of community stuff, I think mostly started on the left, but it wasn't a function of the left. It was a function of these larger forces upstream. Um, you could also, I'm not trying to like beat up the left particularly here because like you could also make a, a case. I just don't want to get back into the Schumpeter's children thing that it really starts with rich people and trickles down. Um, and, um, and rich people tend to be very well-educated and the ranks of the sort of intellectuals and all that kind of stuff, um, the city mice versus the country mice. And so you can see why these ideas would um, spread first on the left and then migrate rightward. My point is it's very complicated, but I think a lot of America's problems are actually American problems and not problems uniquely of the left or the right anymore. Anyway, it's, a, it's an idea, a thought in progress. I brought the G file out from behind the paywall Anyone can, um, anyone, anyone of you listeners can read it. I got a lot of, 
pointed, uh, mostly positive reaction to it. Some of some of it will be very familiar to people. I going by what we know now, I got no problem with all the officers involved in the Tyree Nichols uh, killing going to jail. Right. You have to suspend final judgment until these things go to trial. Um, you know, people were sure that all the cops in the Rodney King thing should go to jail. And then a jury had a different point of view. Um, but taken what we have good reason to believe happened, I don't have any problem with all those guys, all those cops going to jail for a long period of time. But we'll see, you know, what new facts, if any, come to light. I'm just trying to be responsible. There's a reason why you say alleged, right? So this is one giant rationalization about the word or explanation of the word alleged here. But I find as, as morally horrifying as I find what they did to that guy, what they did to Tyree Nichols. And I think it's really interesting is that you'll often find like on Fox um, and other places, they'll bring on cops who will, whose natural instinct is to defend cops. I understand that. And it's one of the reasons why they're, you know, pundits is they want to back the blue and all that kind of stuff. And it's really interesting how hard it is to find even pretty right-wing cops, including some I know, who, while they may disagree with a lot of the sort of uh, hyperbole about the role of police and cops in general, uh, they all, to a person, as far as I've been able to see, condemn these actual cops for just falling down on doing the basic procedure stuff. I was talking about this on the dispatch podcast yesterday. There's just simply no reason why five or six really by all appearances, strong, big men should, should have that much trouble subduing one little guy. And, you know, I've been waiting for someone to make an argument saying, well, they outlawed these holds and, or this kind of thing. But that argument hasn't materialized, I think, because it doesn't apply here. Like they just should have been able to, you know, hold them down, put cuffs on them and be done with it. And instead, what they kept doing was issuing contradictory orders um, while at the same time, like spraying them with mace. And when you spray someone with mace, I don't care, or pepper spray, whatever. I don't care who you are, you're, you're or how compliant and respectful of cops are you're going to put your hands towards your face, towards your eyes. It's just an instinctive thing. And so people, you know, these guys are saying, you know, put your hands behind your back and then they spray him with mace. So of course he's going to put his hands on his eyes. And then they said, we told you to put your hands behind your back. You know, it's just bad, bad procedure and all that. Where I get off the boat, bus, whatever, is on this idea that this was somehow proof that policing in and of itself is racist. Somehow proof that, um, uh, all cops are racist or that, or is, you know, Van Jones makes this argument. My CNN colleague makes this argument that you shouldn't look at the race of the police officers. You should look at the race of the victim. And if the victim is black, then that is sort of prima facie evidence that, um, uh, this was racist, you know, police brutality. And I just find all of that Nonsense. I mean, just not persuasive in this life. I understand it comes from a place of sincerity and emotional feeling and all that kind of thing. I've known plenty of Jews who, you know, very sincere, like Uncle Leo in Seinfeld thinks his 
burger was overcooked because of anti-Semitism. I know lots of people who are very sincere in their views about racism and, and all that. And, and they have understandable, colorable um, arguments for why they see the world the way they do. But that doesn't make them right. And it's just simply not tenable to say that when white cops or black cops beat and, beat and kill a white suspect, that it's um, one thing. But if the same fact pattern applies and the suspect is black, then it's proof of racism, systemic, systemic racism. Um, and where I really get off the bus is this idea that policing in and of itself um, is racist and that, and there are even people, and again, I'm a word guy. So, you know, everyone who's like, I get very frustrated with people who say um, you're taking these other people too literally while they take me extremely literally. You know, I get these criticisms from people saying, you know, you know what they're really saying. And, um, and I don't know what they're really saying. You know, when people say over and over and over again um, that policing, not American even policing, but policing is... Uh, a product of slavery in the United States of America, um, it's sort of incumbent, first of all, it's incumbent upon them to use the correct language, not incumbent upon me to give them the benefit of the doubt about, about how to fix their wrong arguments and their wrong statements. Um, but even the people who say that policing in America was created by, you know, is a product of slavery and the Fugitive Slave Act and slave patrollers who became police um, even if I'm willing to sort of concede that the people who say no policing qua policing, all policing is racist, even if I'm willing to sort of insert the word American before policing, um, to help their argument a little bit, it's still nonsense, right? Cause, okay, so let's just go through it really quickly. Policing is not racist. Can there be racist policing? Sure. There can also be, uh, you know, racist education there can be all sorts you can put the word you can put the modifier or the adjective racist in front of all sorts of things um and that can be a real thing but that doesn't mean that without the word racist it stays racist right so like education is not racist policing is not racist the function the police function now it's true modern professional police departments with civil service rules and all that kind of stuff in america are fairly are more recent than a lot of people would think. And a lot of them do pop up in America either a little before or a little after the Fugitive Slave Act was passed. But the causal relationship between the Fugitive Slave Act and say the founding of the Memphis Police Department, which came nine years earlier, or the San Francisco Police Department, which I think came the year before or maybe the year after, it doesn't matter just isn't there. Like the Fugitive Slave Act did not create the Boston PD. It did not create the Minnesota PD. It did not, or uh, sorry, Minneapolis PD, um, where George Floyd was killed. It, it, there's just not, a, there's no connective tissue there at the time. And there certainly isn't any connective tissue, what, four or five generations later. Um, and, you know, so policing, I had to, I, I keep worrying that maybe I've got something wrong on this. And so I keep looking it up and I keep turning out that I am right. Policing, 
right? None of the professional police departments with all the rules that attain to a modern police department, but policing, constables, sheriffs, right? Um, uh, you know, forces that protect the civil order and um, take possession of people when they're caught raping or murdering or pillaging or whatever. Um, this function goes back to the dawn of the agricultural revolution because one of the things, I mean, I write about this in Suicide of the West, like <laughs> the reason you get the formation of city-states in the first place is to provide security for large groups of people who have started picking up specialized labor, right? In a tribal society, you're a hunter and you're a warrior, and there's really not a huge distinction between the two because he uses spear for both. But in more modern economies after the agricultural revolution, you start getting specialization. You have professional armies. You have uh, full-time blacksmiths. You have full-time farmers. You have full-time tanners, you know, you full-time cooks. You can go down the list, right? And so if you're asking people to give up the means and the social structure to protect themselves from violence, the city-state or the state needs to take on that role. And that's the implicit bargain that creates the first sort of quasi-modern societies and civilizations. Now, often the threats were from foreigners, um, you know, from rival city-states or rival clans. You know, we can get into Mansur's Olson, Mansur Olson's uh, theory of the stationary bandit, which is one I agree with. But simply put, the state in one form or another, you know, uh, whether it was feudal lords or, you know, uh, sheriffs in the, in the West or whoever, the government of one level or another has been, has designated the responsibility of arresting criminals and holding on to them or otherwise, you know, uh, taking responsibility for them in the criminal justice system for a very long time. And the idea that somehow it all came about because of the Fugitive Slave Act or, or slave patrols in Georgia and North Carolina and a couple states um, that people focus on uh, is just ludicrous. And it's all the more ludicrous when you realize that essentially every country in the world has police. And certainly every modern democratic society in the world has police. And the, the, Blind spots and inconsistencies and, and fundamental incoherence that you get from people who say we should get rid of police. And, I, and, and I'm the first to concede this is a very small group of people, but a much larger group of people do not push back on it, right? I mean, where are the liberals who, who yell at me, who lecture me and accuse me of nut picking because I'm just singling out a few people? Why aren't they sort of getting loud and saying, yeah, I know those people are saying this stuff, but I disagree with it, right? No one criticized James Clyburn when he said that, that policing came from slave patrols. You know, this stuff appears in the New York Times op-ed page and the pages of the Atlantic and elsewhere. It shouldn't fall to me to be the one to say uh, this stuff isn't true. And so when you, when, you stay silent when you're, you stay silent when people on your side make these arguments. It may not be fair to say for people to conclude that you agree with them, but as a political matter, you are empowering all the people on the right who say all the Democrats, all liberals want to defund the police because 
the liberals aren't standing up to it. I think I have proven over the years that I take this point very seriously because I have criticized people on the right on my team for seven years and I get unremitting, unrelenting crap for it every single day. But I take that sort of police function of my own side seriously. And I think a lot more liberals need to do the same thing if they don't want to be caricatured by the caricatures in their midst. And so let's just deal with the, the, the logic of the argument, right? If you think, first of all, it is amazing to me that people, the, the, the party writ large, the coalition, the group, the side that is more passionate, more committed, more intellectually and emotionally engaged with the idea that we should expand the role of government in all sorts of spheres of life is tolerant of the idea that the police are bad, that um, intolerant of people who say defund the police, right? Let's just, I'll address people who say get rid of police or police are racist. You know, the Black Lives Matter Foundation, which still gets fairly fawning treatment from mainstream liberals because they're terrified of the idea of criticizing something called the Black Lives Matter Foundation. The Black Lives Matter Foundation states unequivocally that we should just get rid of cops because they're racist and that policing is racist. And so the Black Lives Matter Foundation is full of sort of social justice, you know, quasi-Marxist people who believe in, you know, expanding the role of the state in all sorts of different ways. Um, But they are unwilling to conceive of a group of people capable of enforcing the laws that they want to impose on the country. I mean, how are you going to collect all those extra taxes, all that extra revenue from the, from the millionaires and billionaires whose wealth you want to confiscate if you don't have police of some kind? How is that going to work? Um, this idea that somehow you can utterly trust all of government, every government you know, agency, except for the ones who we entrust to protect us from, um, you know, murder, raber, murder, robbery, and rape, and that kind of thing, is bizarre to me. It's also bizarre to me if you're going to complain about how stupid it is for, you know, these crazy, you know, right-wingers to cling to their guns, um, while at the same time saying you're going to get rid of the police. You know, if you actually got rid of police in this country, you know how many people would want and carry guns at all times? Right. The whole point, go back to Max Weber, right? The whole idea of the state is that the state has a monopoly on violence, right? The state gets to regulate the use of violence in society. And if you want to say that the boots on the ground of regulating violence need to be gotten rid of, right? The actual people who regulate violence need to go. You can't regulate violence, right? You are basically privatizing violence in this country if you do that. You know, you have all these people who are like mad about private security services in this country. And that's fine. There's an argument about that. I don't agree with it. You know, I, I do agree that we should get rid of private prisons. I have more problems with that. But there are people who get very angry about, you know, the private security stuff in this country, which I just think is, is a perfectly fine thing. Even if there are, I, I'm not aware of any, but if there are abuses somewhere, abuses are bad. But you want to have an army of private, essentially private militias in this country, get rid of cops. It's just fundamentally not serious on its own terms. It's just not a serious argument. And, um, and it's a politically deadly argument. Uh, you, 
there is no, there was never any evidence during the the defund the police uh, hysteria during the George Floyd stuff that uh, African Americans and Hispanics, you know, brown and black people, people of color, uh, disadvantaged communities, whatever phrase you want to put on it, um, there's no evidence that such people wanted no police. There was no poll that said that. The only polls I ever saw, and I went looking. Um, said something like, you know, a significant majority, 60 something percent wanted more police in their community. Um, or maybe it was like 60 or 70 percent wanted more police or the same amount of police in their community. And, um, and that something like 20 percent said that they wanted fewer police in their community, which, okay, you know, but fewer is very different than zero. With fewer, somebody still comes when you call 911 and say, there's somebody in my house with a gun, right? With fewer police, you still have police. There's no evidence that anybody wanted zero police. And so anyway, among my biggest problem with this approach to, this sort of rhetorical approach to, um, policing and the alleged racism of policing and all of that. And this is how I began the G file. And I made a more coherent case there because I was more awake. You know, Seymour Martin Lipset, who's one of my intellectual heroes. I knew him a little bit. He had this famous line, which he said all the time. If you only know one country, you know, none. And I think like, if you actually understand what he's getting at there, um, it's a really profound and important statement because he doesn't say if you only know one country, you only know one country, which is logically sort of syntactically um, makes more sense, right? He's saying that if you, you can know all sorts of things about your own country, but if you don't know about other countries, what you know about your own country is, is misleading you know, or wrong, um, in a real, in really, really important ways, you know? And so I think that one of the, there's a really weird kind of myopia, really struggling for the right words this morning. There's this really weird kind of anti-Americanism that comes out of ignorance about other countries, right? If you believe that America, you know, you hear this all the time. You hear a lot from college kids, but you hear it a lot. You know, growing up in New York City, I would hear this kind of thing all the time. You know, in this country, in this country, we're crazy because we do things this way. And, you know, and you ask them, well, how do they do them in other countries that you think is better? And they have no idea. Right. But they just sort of assume that if something is wrong here, it must not be wrong in like enlightened Europe or in Canada or Sweden or whatever. And it turns out that there are just some problems with human existence um, that are thorny and difficult to deal with. Police brutality exists in every society in the world. We do not rank particularly high. I mean, we rank, we definitely rank high among OE rich countries. We rank high in homicides. We rank high in police killings. All that kind of stuff. Absolutely. We rank high and that's bad. Fine. But we actually have a lot in common with Latin American countries um, when it comes to homicide rates and 
uh, police killings and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, David French has made this argument as others have that we actually culturally have a lot more in common with Latin America than we do with Europe because like uh, homicide rates in Venezuela and Mexico and Brazil are higher than they are in the United States. Police killings and police brutality are higher in Latin American countries than they are in the United States. But our stats on these fronts are higher than they are there are people in Europe. But if you think that America is the only country that has police brutality, if you think American country is the only, if America is the only country that has racism, then after a while you start convincing yourself that America is defined by these things, right? That that is what makes America, America is racism and police brutality or murder or whatever. And that's not what defines America. That's not why millions of people all over the world move to America's, you know, for the police brutality and the homicide rate. They see something else. But particularly for a certain kind of activist uh, uh, ideologue mind that fixates on these issues, you come to think that, that these issues are what it means to be America or American and that, you know, America is defined by race and racism. Racism is a much bigger problem in lots of other countries. I'm not saying it's not a problem, and I'm not saying this is a defense of American racism, but it, 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 it opens your heart and your mind up to a little humility and a little grace about some of these issues when you realize that, like, there are a bunch of European countries that are far more racist than us, according to all sorts of social survey data. Um, there are lots of communities, uh, non-white countries out there that are wildly more racist than we are, including places like China and India. Um, of course, there are other countries where the whole concept of race is like really convoluted because there's such, you know, diverse polyglot kind of people. Um, uh, but regardless is like, you know, would you rather be a young black man driving in Haiti or Jamaica than in the United States? Um, if you listen to the stuff that goes on on MSNBC, the answer is yes. If you actually know the statistics about, you know, homicide rates and police brutality in big chunks of the Caribbean, you'd say no. Um, and, and that allows you to sort of say, oh, so this issue is complicated. And there must be more than one reason for why we have some of the problems that we have. Um, it also might open you up to the fact that, like, we've made enormous progress on a lot of these issues. And it find it, I just find it so unbelievably irresponsible when people say America's irredeemably racist, that racism hasn't gotten, the racism problem hasn't gotten any better, and, um, um, and that we've made no progress on this stuff. And not only is it irresponsible, not only is it actually legitimately dangerous, because if you tell people that um, nothing's gotten better, everything's gotten worse, uh, you're going to get a lot of people who say, oh, okay, so normal politics and normal reforms don't matter. Um, we need to take more drastic action, right? If you if you persuade people, and this is a, definitely a problem on the right as well, if you pray, persuade people that nothing good is happening and there is no progress, that's how you sort of breed radicalism and even terrorism. Um, I'm not accusing anybody of deliberately creating radicals or terrorism, but or I'll, I'll blame lots of people for creating radicals. I'm not saying that people are, you know, deliberately encouraging stochastic terrorism or any of that kind of stuff. I'm just simply saying that when you tell people that nothing's getting better 
and that normal politics is pointless, um, you're setting people up to uh, become bomb throwers, either literally or figuratively. And it's also, it's just friggin' not true, right? We made enormous progress on race in this country. I mean, the share of people who are married, of intermarriages, interracial marriages, has been rising steadily. Like, you can tell me this country is getting steadily more racist, even as more and more people are marrying people um, of different races, right? I mean, they're like, oh, I hate those people, but I will have babies with them. It's just a weird argument to make. The share of people in this country who are willing to, um, who say that they um, wouldn't mind if a person of a different race moved next door has been steadily going down for decades. Um, I mean, sorry, the people who would object to having a person of a different race next door um, has been steadily going down for decades. And you can say, oh, that's social desirability bias. People know that they're not supposed to say they have a problem with blacks or Asians or or, or whites or whatever moving next door so they don't say it. And I'm sure there's some truth to that at the margins. But the simple fact is, is that um, even the social desirability bias is um, a sign of progress because it used to be that people were utterly unapologetic for stating their racist views. And now they know that, that that's just simply socially unacceptable. Um but moreover, it's just sort of like if, if you really believe there's no progress and that nothing has been done and that things haven't gotten better, then let's just get rid of the HR departments. Let's get rid of all of this bias training. Let's get rid of all of this diversity mongering. Because if all of that stuff has done nothing to improve race relations in this country, if race relations have only gotten worse or stayed the same since Jim Crow, then why do we have diversity officers? Why do we have racial sensitivity training? Why are we banning all of these words and phrases and concepts on college campuses? I mean, is it just a jobs program? Because that's the argument people are making when they say we've made zero racial progress in this country. They're saying all of the efforts of all of these people, going back to Martin Luther King or Booker T. Washington or whoever, have been for naught because nothing has gotten better. And again, I am perfectly willing to acknowledge that most liberals... Um, including most black liberals don't actually believe this, but they give enormous oxygen to these sorts of statements and arguments. They do not push back on it. Instead, they leave it to people like me to push back on it. And then a bunch of people call me a racist for even questioning this stuff and screw you. I mean, I just don't buy any of it. And I think it's dangerous. I think it's, un it's literally unpatriotic because it fuels a notion of, of anti-Americanism. Um, it's anti-human because, uh, it reduces people uh, to these cold, impersonal forces and says that, you know, even though these black cops were born what, in probably 1998, 95, whatever, and they were raised in a um, society that condemns racism and they went to all these schools and all that kind of stuff and blah, 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 blah. The second they put on those uniforms, they are inhabited by the ghost of Jim Crow and racism and fugitive slave patrols. And those, those black people have no agency whatsoever um, to make humane, decent choices because the system itself is racist and compels these actions regardless of the individuals. I think individuals always have the power to make good decisions. Um, um, I think the system can't work if you don't believe in human agency. Why put anybody in jail? Why arrest any rapists? Why arrest any murderers? If 
it's just simply they are the product of the, the root causes and institutional arrangements that they were born into. Um, you have to give people the benefit of the doubt, whether they've done evil or they've done good, that they did it on purpose. Because otherwise, there's no such thing as, as justice. And, um, and I think that the people who are on the other side of this argument are just utterly oblivious to the damage that they're doing to the country. So anyway, I've gone way too long. I apologize, particularly to Adam. Adam, please forgive me. And um, I'll talk to you next time.